0: Lamentations I want to read beginning at verse 21 this I recall to my mind therefore I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I hope in him The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though He causes grief. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Father, we are so grateful for these promises that even in the midst of our sorrow and weeping, you care for us, you weep with us, you enable us to be drawn once again into the rejoicing that comes from your Spirit alone, supernatural rejoicing. May you give that as your gift to this your congregation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Eric Raymond wrote a short article on Lamentations that was titled, Can Your Theology Handle the Book of Lamentations? And I wish it was a longer article because it really, I thought, was well written. But even the questions that he asks, I think, were wonderful. He prefaces those questions by saying there is a tendency nowadays for evangelicals to apologize for the Bible, apologize for the things that it says, especially the difficult passages. And Lamentations is one of those difficult passages. And so he asks, do you have a theology where God can get really angry and show it. Lamentations does. Do you have a theology where man is really, really bad? Lamentations does. And it does so so graphically, it makes some people cringe because they don't like to think of themselves as being as bad as Lamentations portrays them as being. Third question, do you have a theology that can deal with the fact that even the righteous can experience pain weeping and anguish of heart like Jeremiah did. Lamentations has that kind of theology. Fourth, do you have a theology where God's grace is really powerful and lavish, indeed greater than the greatest of our sins? Lamentations does. You know, the description of God's grace in in that passage I just read in Lamentations 3, is astonishing, given the depth of sin and rebellion that this book addresses. It is lavish grace, incredibly lavish grace. Now, we see the answers to those questions elsewhere in the scripture, but there's something that's very unique to Lamentations, and that is that it teaches us how to weep in a godly fashion how to avoid ungodly weeping, but how to weep in a godly fashion, and it does so through the tears of Jeremiah. Now, there are many people who question whether Jeremiah wrote this book, but I believe that the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that he indeed is the author, and he appears to have written this uh, as Jerusalem lay in rubbles after Nebuchadnezzar had conquered it, torn down its walls, destroyed much of the city, and uh, destroyed completely uh, the temple. And uh, before Jeremiah begins his heart-rending river of tears in chapter 3, he sets the stage by portraying Jerusalem as a desolate widow in chapter 1. And even the Rhythm of the Hebrew adds to the sadness of this poem. There's no way, if you don't know Hebrew, that you can see that, other than just listening to it. And uh, I happen to be one who believes that the Hebrew um, diacritical marks that are above every letter are actually notes of music that God put into the Bible. And not everybody holds to that, but there is a whole theory, and it's a growing scholarship on this that believes uh, all of the tunes of the Psalms have been preserved for us. Some of them are very martial and strident, others are upbeat and joyful, others are very sad. Well, this is one of those sad ones, and I've asked the TEP team to try to see if they can play the first 33 seconds. It'll only be verse one. If you want to uh, listen to the Hebrew, because you're not going to make sense out of the Hebrew, but you could be reading. Uh, verse one of chapter one as this is played. person who is depressed and discouraged? It definitely is. And as Jeremiah sits in the smoking rubble of Jerusalem, he likens Jerusalem to a widow that has lost her husband, lost her house, lost everything that she used to possess. The widow is devastated, and Jeremiah is devastated with her, but we're going to be seeing he's devastated for a different reason than Jerusalem is devastated. And he helps her to put off despair and to put on a godly mourning. And Jeremiah himself is led by the Holy Spirit to weep with those who weep and to model what godly sorrow looks like. Now, lately I've been going through relational 360 and just been blown away with... the, the, the kind of empathy is where we're, I'm at right now. The kind of empathy that he's teaching us, very practical ways that you can see. Well, Jeremiah had empathy in spades. He felt the pain of Jerusalem. And uh, he sought to minister in the midst of the herd of others. We will see that at least in Lamentations, Jeremiah stands as a type of Christ in doing that. Now, why was Jeremiah even in Jerusalem? Because he didn't have to be there. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his officers had offered to Jeremiah, hey, you can come with us, and we'll give you the good life in Babylon. But Jeremiah turned that down. He decided to stay, and I believe that he was led by the Holy Spirit to stay in Jerusalem because he was going to identify with Jerusalem in all of her pain. Um. He felt the hurt, and uh, as he sat in the dust and looked at this empty, desolate city, the tears started to run down his face as he says these words that were just sung in Hebrew. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies." And as the music continues to unravel in the book of of Lamentations, things get much more intense, much more emotional. And the poetry and the music together, I think are just an amazing display of the emotions of Jeremiah. Now, what many commentators have pointed out is that this is emotion under control. Jeremiah does not get hysterical. Jeremiah does not lash out at others. He does not say things that he will later regret. He models to us the godly emotion of sorrow and agony under the control of God's Holy Spirit and under the control of his own spirit. There's a self-discipline that is there. Too many people sorrow in a way that sins against God and sins against others. Jeremiah does not do that. Now, what do I mean by emotion under control? The emotion's obvious. All you have to do is read the book, you can see the raw emotion there. Where is the control? Well, commentators have pointed out that every word and every chapter of this book is structured in a way to lead us to hope in God. It's a very disciplined writing out of his emotions. Let me try to explain this uh, in a little bit of detail. There are five poems represented by five chapters in our translation. Chapters one, two, four, and five are words that Jeremiah gives to Jerusalem to say so that the remnant can be led away from despair and into godly sorrow. Chapter three is Jeremiah's own words, or if my theory is correct, it is the words of Christ speaking through Jeremiah. And each of the poems has exactly 22 verses, that's the number of of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, And the first four of those chapters are acrostic in nature, where the first line beginning with the next letter of the alphabet. And uh, it's uh, from Aleph to Tau, that's the beginning and ending. It's sort of like saying, here is the A to Z of laments. God is instructing us on what true godly laments should look like. And so this is not a spontaneous lashing out. It is a very carefully and prayerfully thought through exercise in godly sorrow. He doesn't stuff his emotions. He unleashes his emotions in a healthy way that is totally under control. Now that control can also be seen in other characteristics of the book's form. Chapter three, which forms the heart of the book, has amazingly a triple acrostic where every single line of every verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. It's amazing, and this makes the reader as he's reading through it, realize immediately on the surface there is something different about this chapter. This chapter is being set apart as being the very heart uh, of this book. And of course, we would know that as soon as we discover that it's a chiasm, that chapter 3 is the heart. Each couplet of every verse in the book follows the kina rhythm of poetry. Now, that is very unique to laments. Other poetry might have three accents on each of the couplets. Well, this one has a three and a two, three and two, three and two, and it gives it kind of a weird, dying off kind of effect, but that's what gives some of the emotion to this uh, poetry. So even though it expresses the raw emotion of grief on many levels, it is grief and sorrow that is expressed under a very controlled manner. Now I mentioned that chapter three is the heart of the book, It represents Christ himself experiencing this pain through Jeremiah, and I'll try to prove that at the end of the sermon. Let's just assume it for now, okay? Uh, The book as a whole is constructed as a chiasm, and you might wonder why there are 13 parts to the chiasm when there's only five poems. It's because there is a voice change, a very deliberate voice change that happens that divides it up into very obvious discrete units, 13 different units. But because of this repetition going throughout, you can see that those 13 things tie all five poems together as one unit. And so again, all of these things show that this is emotion under control. Uh, You can see the chiasm in your outlines. Now, if you look at the backside, of your outline, you'll see a chart with progressive arrows that are pointing to five words at the bottom. Each word represents another chapter in Lamentations. And so those show how the structure of the book helps to resolve what starts off as raw grief of the devastated widow in chapter one to understanding the cause of this devastation in chapter two, receiving hope that The very God who brought this affliction is also a God of never-ending mercies and love and faithfulness in chapter three. Well, that gives a solid theological basis for calling her to repentance in chapter four, and chapter five is a more refined prayer of the godly that contains repentance, expressions of pain, pleas for mercy, it vindicates God. You're just perfectly right, Lord, in being upset with us and our sins, so it's vindicating God. But it's asking God also to take away some of the pain, give them relief, bring your judgments upon the Babylonians. And uh, it's set apart from all of the other chapters by even though it has the same 22 verses in the Hebrew that the other ones do, they're not acrostic. And so again, it's making it different to show this is the conclusion that everything is driving towards. Uh, Doug Wilson did a very short but I think a very beautiful analysis of lamentations by showing that chapter 3 is the key to taking a sorrowing soul from uh, out of despair, giving them hope, and then sustaining that widow in her tears in the days to come. In other words, Tears don't turn off just because you've understood your theology well. You're still going to be pained in your heart. You're still going to cry. But understanding helps turn those tears into godly tears. Anyway, Wilson said this, "'What we gain at the center of the book from our text, we are allowed to carry out with us. We walked through a desolate wilderness, found a great treasure, and are invited to carry that treasure out through a desolate wilderness.'" So that's the big overview picture of the book. And I want to go back now to chapter 1, and uh, let's apply this book to to ourselves. We've already seen that chapter 1 laments over the desolation of Jerusalem and likens the remnant who had survived, by God's providence, had survived to a devastated widow who has lost everything. Now, there are two reactions that such a widow can have. One reaction is she can lash out at God and lash out at others, and the other reaction is that she can mourn but be drawn to the heart of God and receive comfort from God. Two, quite, they're both mourning, but only one leads to life. Only one is godly. Now, sadly, the first reaction is the natural impulse of our heart, and Paul contrasts those two kinds of sorrow this way. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. You were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And Lamentations teaches us, I think it's just brilliantly constructed, but constructed in a way to teach us how to sorrow in a way that leads to life and healing rather than a way that leads to despair and possibly even to death. So chapter 1 is the desolated widow, and rather than letting Jerusalem, the widow, weep any way that she wants to weep, Jeremiah puts appropriate words into her mouth and calls upon her to have godly sorrow. What does that look like? Well, just from chapter 1, let me give you six things that this chapter describes godly sorrow is looking like. First of all, godly sorrow does not stuff our emotions or deny the pain. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 definitely give us permission to weep and to cry over the painful providences that God brings into our lives. That's okay. And actually, denial is not okay. Denial is not helpful. There are many ways that people can engage in denial and never properly engage in godly sorrow. And I've experienced at least one of those ways. Uh, Growing up in boarding school, I was a very much bullied kid. And I learned to stuff my emotions and um, take on a stoic, grin-and-bear-it attitude, putting on a fake smile on my face. And I kind of closed off my heart, I hardened my heart, and in the process feared opening up my heart to love, because that makes you vulnerable and subject to pain all over again. That is a form of denial. Okay, That's not healthy at all, very unhealthy. Another form of denial is a refusal to see God's hand in the pain and instead only see others as the source and to lash out at those others. This was the problem with the revolutionaries who assassinated Gedaliah in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, excuse me, 41, and kidnapped Jeremiah and took him to Egypt. Okay, they saw the evil of Babylon, and they were lashing out at the only ones that they could see who were bringing pain into our lives. They left God out of the equation and ended up far worse as a result. In Babylon, there were false prophets who were predicting an immediate release. So they had another kind of denial. They were in denial about the seriousness of their situation. So there are many ways we can be in denial. Uh, those who are enablers of drunkards. And we probably all have experienced some people who are enablers of drunkards. That's another kind of denial. But in Lamentations, Jeremiah doesn't allow for that. Let me just quickly go through chapter one. The words of chapter one recognize the reality of her utter desolation, verses one through seven, so there's no denial there the cause of her desolation of verses 8 through 11, no denial there, encouraging weeping over her sin and desolation in verses 12 through 19, and enable her to make confession to God in verses 20 through 22. That's godly sorrow. It weeps, it agonizes over the loss, but it processes the reasons for that loss and allows those things to turn us to God. Now those who lash out at others rarely do the self-examination needed to see what God is doing in their lives. They're so fixated on the evil of others, they're blinded to the good that God is using that pain for. They don't want to think about that. They're so busy pointing the finger at the evil of Babylon, and Jeremiah doesn't deny that Babylon was extremely evil, right? But they're so busy pointing the finger at evil Babylon that they fail to see three fingers pointing back at them. Jeremiah's lament makes it clear none of these things was by accident. So the first thing you see here is that godly sorrow does not stuff emotions, deny that there is pain, or deny that we deserve it, and actually deserve worse if God were to bring it. Second, Jeremiah gives counsel in each chapter to help the widow process what is happening. In verse 8 he says, Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. So unlike Job's afflictions, which were not the result of his own sin, these afflictions are the result of sin. Verse 9 says, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforters. So it, it is helpful to understand, or at least investigate, why have I received this? troubleshoot. Try to think outside the box. Are there reasons why God has brought this into my life? Now, in the case of Job, he never did discover it until the very end, did he? We don't always know, but if we can understand it, it helps us to make adjustments. Third, Jeremiah gives the widow permission to express the pain, frustration, and the questions of why. I think that is significant because the pain was her own fault. It was her own fault that she's in this pain, right? And yet God still allows her to process this turmoil that's going on inside of her. Of course, within guidelines, he does not allow her to lash out at God or lash out at others. But the words he puts into her mouth are filled with questions of why, how long, don't you care? Why am I left desolate? Will you abandon me forever? I'll just give you one example. In verse 12, she is allowed to, in effect, wonder, don't you care? Now, the Babylonians didn't care. (laughs) They could care less about her pain. But she could still ask in her head, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. Now, I find it significant that God himself allows this widow to pour out her doubts her feelings of betrayal and grief, even though they were her own fault. I just find that fascinating. He corrects her, but he still sympathizes with her pain. It's an amazing balance, and it's one of the many things that I think makes our God approachable by those who are going through pain. Now, by bringing up the fact that God inflicted this pain in his fierce anger shows a fourth thing that is important in godly weeping. We must acknowledge that God is sovereign over even the painful events that we experience. Uh, it may seem like a contradiction to the previous point, it's not at all. And um, I'll put a plug in for uh, another of Kay Arthur's uh, books that I just think is, it, it's my favorite of all of her books. It's Lord, Heal My Hurts. And a big component of her book is God's sovereignty. There's many other components as well, but. God's sovereignty has been used by her to take multitudes of women through enormous pain and suffering and to do so successfully. Now, God's sovereignty will especially be emphasized in chapter 2, so I'll, I'll move on, but it's at least brought up here in chapter 1. Fifth, one by one, she lists the things that she is most hurt over. Jeremiah doesn't allow this to be a generalized, undefined hurt where you're just mad at the person, but you can't articulate all of the reasons why. You're just mad, right? No, he doesn't. He, he says, no, let's list out all of the hurts that you're experiencing. And in the process, she can realize which of these reasons are legitimate, which ones are not. She lists the obvious things of death, destruction, loss, hunger, mockery, and betrayal. Now keep in mind, God is the one who's putting these words into her mouth she's not at chapter five yet but to even get there she needs to start listing out the hurts that she has experienced and here's the thing most of those hurts were of her own doing I'll just give you an example verse 19 speaks of the enormous pain of betrayal but who's betrayed her it's her lovers that she's been fornicating with right says I called for my lovers but they deceived me they didn't come to help her in her uh, hour of need. The fact that she should not have had lovers does not mean that she shouldn't process the shock and the pain that she is feeling by being betrayed from them. All of this will help her to turn away from such things and to see God alone as her possession. I love the fact that God helps us even with the pains that are our own fault, that are the result of our own sins. Now, after listing all of her pains, chapter 1 ends with a mini prayer that Jeremiah puts into Jerusalem's mouth. It confesses sin, expresses sorrow over that sin, expresses weeping over the painful consequences of that sin, pleads with God to take away the pain and the loneliness and to punish the Babylonians, and then suddenly remembers again, but I realize, Lord, that all of this is because of my sins." So it is a prayer that weeps, yes, but it vindicates God and resolves sorrow in prayer to God. So what we have in chapter 1 really is the paradigm for the whole book. Chapter 2 focuses upon the ultimate determiner of all this mess. God was angry over the sins of Jerusalem and has punished her. That's chapter 2 in a nutshell. Okay, Chapter 2 makes it crystal clear none of these things happened by chance. God was the ultimate determiner of the Babylonians who raped who pillaged, who murdered, who brought devastation and destruction to the countryside. And people cringe when they hear that. (laughs) They, They don't have a theology that can handle that. They try to defend God's reputation by explaining away the clear meaning of the text here. That is, God was the one who raised up Babylon and Edom and the other enemies to bring destruction and pain into Judah's life. Jeremiah minces no words about that. Chapter two says, the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast down from heaven to the earth, the beauty of Israel. The Lord swallowed up and has not pitied. He has brought down strongholds to the earth. He has cut off in fierce anger, every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand. He has slain. He has poured out his fury. He has destroyed How on earth could that be? Because when you look at the things that these chapters list, they're horrible. They are sinful beyond all kinds of sin. The Babylonians killed babies. The Babylonians raped women. They murdered, they pillaged, they took people captive. How on earth could God be sovereign over things like that? James says that God neither sins nor does he tempt anyone to sin. So how can he have providential control over even the sins of others? Well, Romans one through two gives us a hint. It says that God gives us up to a depraved mind when we persist in resisting his goodness and his word in our lives, when they persist in suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And I want to use an illustration to try to give you an idea of how uh, this works. The thing that holds this pen up into the air is the restraining power of my hand. If my hand was not underneath this pen, it would fall to the ground of its own gravitational force. Well, in much the same way, The scripture says there is a depraved nature in men, women, and even children. And apart from God's restraint, we would tend to plummet into any conceivable sin. Now, do we deserve the restraint that God puts upon our lives? We don't. And Romans says... When we persist in saying, I don't like God's law, I don't like his restraint, I don't even like the existence of God, God says, okay, you don't want me in my life, I'll let you see what it's like to have me gone, I'm going to give you up, and what happens? Just as that pen falls to the ground, it is guaranteed that we will fall into the sins, it's guaranteed that the Babylonians will fall into their sins, and that the Israelite leaders would fall into their sins. I don't have to throw that pen down for it to fall. It just falls of its own gravitational force. And in the same way, God does not cause sin. He does not force people to sin. He does not tempt people to sin. They are the ones who are at fault. They did it of their own free will, but did God ordain that? Yes. The very fact that he let them up, let them uh, go, means that they're going to go into a free fall. And so, God is providentially in control of all things in life, but unlike the evil of man who intended for evil, God always works it together for the good of his people. Now, some people reject that. They don't have a theology that can accommodate that, so they reject the idea that God is sovereign over everything. But the alternative is not pretty. If God's hand is not in it, then it is not working together for my good, for the good of the kingdom. It's not working together for God's glory. It's impossible. The whole book shows that if God's hand is not in it, then the only things that these people can process is chance, evil men, and Satan. That's a recipe for disaster. So the sovereignty of God is brought home to this widow over and over again in chapter 2. She has to learn how to process her grief with God. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy to acknowledge that God is sovereign over the painful, the dreadful, the unjust, the sinful things that have happened to us. This whole book shows that it's not easy. It leads to tears, right? But we need to make sure that our tears are godly tears, not ungodly tears. It's okay to pray imprecations against the Babylonians and the Edomites who slaughtered babies. We should. Lamentations does so. Uh, God gives us permission to do so. In fact, jumping ahead to chapter three, in the prayer of Jesus through Jeremiah in chapter three, the last three verses are a strong imprecation. Let me read 64 through 66, which by the way, the English divides it up more than the Hebrew musical verses are, but repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Now that prayer indicates God does not at all justify the evil of the Babylonians. So just because we need to learn from God's providence, submit to God's providence, does not mean we need to agree with the evil. We can disagree with it strongly, oppose it strongly, and he will later judge the Babylonians and the Edomites for the evil that they did. But Jeremiah's perspective is that if God is not sovereign, why even bother praying to God? Why bother complaining to God? If God is not sovereign, there is no logical way out of the cesspool of bitterness. But if God is sovereign if we see that his whippings are out of love, which is the heart of chapter three, right, they're out of love, we can run into his arms, confess our sins, complain about the enemies that continue to beat up on us, and trust that the Lord's gonna take care of our enemies. In fact, the very fact of using these imprecations, saying, Lord, you handle them, you judge my enemies, frees us up to love those enemies, which, Lamentations chapter 3 also encourages us to do. It's just an, it's an amazing balance that you see in this book. If God is sovereign, he can reverse our sad state when we repent, as he promises to do. If God is sovereign, we can pray against our enemies, leave the results in God's hands, rather than getting bitter. Now, this doesn't mean that Jeremiah stuffs his emotions or calls the desolate widow to stuff her emotions. He does not. Godly sorrow is allowed to ask why or how long and weep, but it may not deny the right of God to afflict us. Godly sorrow may plead for mercy, but it may not complain that we deserve better. We do not deserve better. We deserve a whole lot worse than we've ever gotten. Godly sorrow may weep under afflictions, but it may not rail against God or cast God off. So if you take a look at your chiasm outline at the beginning, you can see in your outline that the A sections of the chiasm give a vivid description of Zion's desolation, but the second A section, that's chapter 5, resolves that by praying in faith to God. Both B sections show that Zion was betrayed. But both B sections give partial resolution to this pain by looking to the Lord. The C sections of the outline basically say that Jehovah's Wrath has done all of this. But if God brought the pain, well then God can undo the pain, can't he? He's the one we logically go to uh, for that. In fact, there's another book that I would like to recommend along these lines. It's John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Cancer very short book. It's a a marvelous treatment on how it doesn't matter how bad the pain that we're going through. If we process it right, it'll be for our good. We can grow. Uh, Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your cancer. It's an amazing book. The D sections are particularly tough because they not only show desolation upon the leaders who deserved it, but upon infants and young children who suffered along with everyone else. They speak of children starving and dying and mothers eating their own children. And Jeremiah's inspired words attribute even those troubles to the Lord. The E sections of the chiasm give Jeremiah's exhortation to cry out to, the, to Jehovah. We're not only given permission, we're commanded, cry out to Jehovah. Why? Because the F sections show that Yehovah afflicts in mercy covenant love, covenant steadfastness. The first F section speaks of the rod of God's correction. Well, that shebbot rod is a loving rod of correction. The second F section encourages people to submit to God's chastening and learn from it. In other words, don't dance around and try to run away from God when he's spanking you. You submit to God's spanking. That's how you, you come out of it ahead. But it's the central section of the book that gives such beautiful instruction for the right attitude to undergird our sorrows. And I want to finish this sermon by going through chapter three, verses 21 through 32, verse by verse. This is the heart of the book. After reminding himself that Jehovah chastises us in mercy, verse 21 says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Understanding God's nature can turn abject despair into weeping with hope. Hope is totally compatible with godly weeping. It is not compatible with ungodly weeping. Ungodly weeping leads to despair. It robs us of hope. So that's one way you can test. Is my my sorrowing and weeping uh, godly? Well, one particular test would be, does it rob me of my my hope? Um, You're not approaching your sorrows with faith if it does. Verse 22 through 23, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Those two verses are incredible condensation of theology. It is of the Lord's very nature to have mercy. And the word for mercy, as Gary summarized so well at the beginning of the service, hesed, is the the Hebrew word, chesed goes way beyond mercy. It's variously translated as loyalty, faithfulness, covenant love, steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness. It is a word that woos the heart to God rather than making us want to run away from God. So when we sorrow, we need to remind ourselves our God is a God of chesed. His rod of discipline is because of his loyalty to us, his love to us, his faithfulness to us, his mercy to us. So even in the pain, he wants our best. And we should run into his arms after a whipping. And it was precisely because of his chesed that the entire nation was not wiped out. God preserved a remnant in Babylon. Not all were consumed in his wrath. Now, even the way he words it, he he assumes God would have been perfectly just in wiping out every man, woman, and child. He would have been perfectly just, but he chose not to. Uh, it is through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. He then states, because his compassions fail not, that the word for compassions is the kind of tender mercy, sympathetic love that a mother would have to her helpless baby or young children. And this is another aspect of God's character that keeps us from despair. It is because of a mom's compassions that a child who has been disciplined by her still runs into her arms, right? Our theology of God makes a huge difference in how we process sorrow. When Jeremiah says that God's mercies are new every morning, what does it imply? We need, we need mercy every morning. We've got sin every day of our lives. And if you don't, have not seen sin in your life for the past week, You probably don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not walking in the Spirit, in the light of His, because the more His light shines, the more we see our motives, our thoughts, our intents, our goals are not lining up with God's Word. And then comes my favorite phrase in the whole book, great is your faithfulness. This is the phrase that made Thomas Chalmers write that masterful hymn, great is thy faithfulness. We're going to be singing that uh, right after the sermon. James Smith says, This great affirmation of faith came from the lips of a man who had recently suffered what few others before or since have suffered. It was a time when men had only the most meager provisions. Every morsel of bread, every cup of water, every tattered garment was regarded as an evidence of the mercies of God. He goes on to say in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. Now that was such a contrast to the revolutionaries who put their hope in power. It's such a contrast to the false prophets who put their hope in a fantasy. When people despair, they're like a drowning person who's grasping for straws, and those straws will not hold that person up. Now it's not as if when we approach things rightly that we're going to always understand. We don't always understand uh, God. I think of the disciples in John chapter six, Jesus had said some really tough words and almost everybody forsook him. They just couldn't stand to be around Christ. And there's 12 disciples hanging around still. And he says, you guys wanna go too? And Peter's words are interesting. He doesn't deny that he was very uncomfortable with what Jesus had said, but he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We may not understand what you are doing, but we're sticking by you. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Never did Jeremiah question God's goodness. In our pain, we may be tempted to question his goodness, but we must not. Jeremiah might have wondered why he had to suffer all of his pain, but he never questioned God's goodness. And by the way, waiting on the Lord in that uh, verse there, it's never a passive waiting. Some people are tempted to just crawl into a hole and let the world go away. That's what you feel like doing when you're depressed. This is the opposite kind of waiting because the next second half of the couplet defines that waiting as seeking God. It's a very active waiting, a seeking of God. So those who seek God have this as one of their most ultimate presuppositions That God is good. That's why they seek him. Verses 26 through 32 show more characteristics we should have when the Lord brings disciplines. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He calls for hope in the future. He calls for active waiting upon the Lord. That means praying. And he calls for a quiet attitude. Now the quiet attitude is not contradicting his earlier calls to voice our pain to the Lord. Okay? Instead, this is referring not to a physical silence, but a quiet attitude under discipline that does not lash out, does not act sullenly, or even run. It quietly takes the discipline and treats the discipliner as the one who loves us and has our best interests in mind. Verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. If you learn suffering well when you are youngsters, you're probably less likely to end up in despair when you're older. God deliberately puts us through pain even when we are youngsters. Verse 28, let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Now these people were captives and Jeremiah is telling them to control their emotions in front of their captors. By the way, this would have made the Babylonians astonished at this remnant. They're different than any other captives that they have ever seen. There is something different about them. And so Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us that there's a time to weep and a time not to weep. There's a time when it is utterly inappropriate to express our tears before others. The cries of this book are crying out of our hearts to God, but also the ability to control our tongues before men. So again, it shows emotions under control. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Now, putting your mouth in the dust is an attitude of humility. I bow before you, Lord. I receive your discipline and humility. When you have a humble attitude toward God in the face of discipline, God loves to bless you. Verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. Abner Chu comments, putting these ideas together, the writer encourages his readers to endure the full bout of humiliation in exile, and they would have a great deal of humiliation in the first years of their exile, but submitting without bitterness would get them further ahead than lashing out, striking back. By the way, this is probably the passage that Jesus was referring to when he said, somebody hits you on the cheek, give them the other cheek, this passage right here. Uh, Since God is in it, there is no reason to be bitter. In fact, the reason we can have such an attitude towards our pain is given in verses 31 through 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Now, I don't think that this is just a promise that they're going to return from exile. I think it's primarily saying that when we've learned our lessons that God loves to exalt us. He exalts the humble. And if you study the history of the exiles, you will see that the exiles were hugely exalted by God throughout the empire, entering into some of the best positions and jobs and places of influence. God's compassions and the multitude of his chesed guaranteed a beneficial outcome. Verse 33 goes on to say, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So it's not like God loves giving you discipline. He doesn't any more than you would love taking your child to the hospital with cancer and the child's crying, going through all painful procedures, but you're doing it in love because you want this person, this child's ultimate good down the road. So all of those form the points, and I'm not going to repeat them. All of them form the points of what makes for godly weeping and sorrow. Does the realization of all of these truths, stop the weeping right away. No. Even after all of the glorious theology of chapter 3, verses 48 through 50 still have Jeremiah saying, my eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. So he has to continually remind himself of God's care. When you're going through deep, deep afflictions, you've got to continue to remind yourself and preach to yourself and give yourself perspective. We need to fight for it. Godly sorrow does not automatically happen. Ungodly sorrow automatically happens. That's what our flesh immediately dictates. But we've got to fight for godly sorrow. But The main point that I wanted to bring up here is that this theology of god's goodness faithfulness compassion even god's own pain as he disciplines us does not necessarily take away our pain tears or grief but it sustains us in that pain it helps to move us to god rather than away from god and jeremiah would continue to face some pretty tough wilderness as the revolutionaries captured him took him to Egypt, when he wouldn't cooperate with them in Egypt, they stoned him to death. It was not a pleasant end. And yet, even in his tears, Jeremiah could say, just as Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. So this book teaches us how to avoid the extremes of denial on the one hand or despair on the other hand. It calls us to weep with hope. As Doug Wilson said, what we gained at the center of the book from our text, we are allowed to carry out with us. We walk through a desolate wilderness, found a great treasure, and are invited to carry that treasure out through a desolate wilderness. Let me make one last comment, and that is on the Christ of Lamentations. Now certainly there is an altar and a temple that were abandoned by God. And I think this book is a prophetic statement that the temple, is is not a permanent institution. The temple uh, was designed to look to the Lord, and if you didn't look to the Lord, it became a useless sign, okay? And I think that the phrase in chapter four, how the gold has become dim, is such a beautiful metaphor of how the redemption pictured in the temple is dim compared to Jesus. So you, you do see Christ in other places, But I think it is in chapter 3 in particular that we see the voice of Christ speaking through Jeremiah. Now, last week I gave 10 comparisons between Jeremiah and Jesus in the book of Jeremiah, and I said that while I find those comparisons intriguing, I don't necessarily see them as sufficient to make Jeremiah a type of Christ, at least in the book of Jeremiah. But Richard Pratt convinced me this week that when you combine those images together with chapter 3 of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah does indeed stand out as a type of Christ. Chapter 3 begins, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. Not I am a man, but I am the man. And when this is combined with the fact that many of the phrases in this chapter are elsewhere word for word, used on the lips of Jesus, I believe that this is God the Son speaking through Jeremiah and entering into our pain, so possibly even more than a type. Now, of course, not everybody believes that. Some say that this is Zion collectively speaking, and that does make sense of certain features of the chapter, but verse 1 explicitly calls him the man rather than the woman, as she was previously referred to. And verse 14 has this man speaking of my people. The corporate view cannot adequately account for the man being different from the people. But if it is Christ speaking through Jeremiah, then Christ is the head of the body. He can speak on behalf of the body. But since he is also distinct from the body, he can speak of them as my people. Another view is that some individual, whether Jeremiah or some other individual, is speaking about his own suffering and only his own suffering, but other commentators point out that that does not... It accounts for some verses, but not all of the verses. For example, the "we" passages where this speaker represents the suffering remnant. And I think it also fails to tie this chapter together with the other chapters of Jeremiah. But if it is Christ speaking through Jeremiah then what's going on here is he is speaking in much the same way that Jesus spoke to Saul in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He is so united with his elect that when his elect suffer persecution, he suffers persecution. When they they are going through pain, he is in some sense going through pain. And thus Paul could say that he was filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Let me read that for you. It's an astonishing passage. It's Colossians 1:24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now he's not saying that Christ needed more suffering to atone. That work is completely finished. It is done, Jesus said. The only way this verse makes sense is if Christ ordained for himself to continue to experience ongoing sufferings with his church. And until the last sufferings of saints is finished on earth, Christ is ordained to continue to experience our afflictions. So every affliction you go through is filling up the afflictions of Christ. Now, certainly, Jeremiah could be simply praying this as a type of Christ, but since he's not mentioned, since almost every verse in chapter 3 would could showcase Jesus' suffering on behalf of his people, it's at least possible that the whole of chapter 3 is Christ speaking out the sufferings of his body, the remnant. But at a minimum, Jeremiah stands as a type of Christ, the Christ who sympathizes with you, empathizes with you, enters into your sufferings with you. And for that, we can praise him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us not just intellectually, instructs us not just in terms of what the actions of our will should be, but it instructs us even on our emotions. And I pray that on this one emotion of sorrow, that you would help us to become more and more godly, under the control of your Holy Spirit, directed and guided by your Holy Spirit. May we not sin against you through our emotions, but may we glorify your name. We love you, we bless you, and we never want to forget that your faithfulness, your mercy, your loving kindness is new to us every morning. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.